going to be reading to you from a book called No Children, No Pets by Marion Holland. And this book was first published in 1956. That was a really long time ago. A lot of things have changed since 1956, but a lot of things have stayed the same. So while you listen to this story, see what things are the same and what things are different. In the very first chapter, they're talking about airmail. You might be wondering, well, what is airmail? Airmail is some, when a letter would be sent by airplane for at least part of its journey to get somewhere faster instead of just being carried over by land. So in 1956, if you got an airmail letter, it was something pretty important because the sender wanted it to get to that person quickly. So as we read this first chapter, see if you can figure out why this letter is so important. Airmail registered. Jane was alone in the house when the registered airmail letter came. At least she was alone if you didn't count four-year-old Betsy, who was taking a nap. Mother wouldn't be home from work for an hour yet, and Don had gone off to the playground pool to swim. It was so hot that Jane almost wished she had taken Betsy and gone too. But no matter how cooled off you got in the pool, you always arrived home again hotter than ever. After the long walk through the crowded, stifling streets, Victoria the cat had the right idea. She was stretched out as flat as a gray fur rug on the floor just inside the front screen door. When the doorbell rang, Victoria didn't even twitch a whisker, and Jane had to step over her to take the letter from the postman. Sign here, he said, handing her a slip of paper and a stubby pencil. Jane stared at the thick envelope. But it's not for me. It's for my mother. Sign her name and your name underneath it. Jane wrote... Mrs. Mary Sanders, and underneath it, Jane Ann Sanders. The handwriting was a little wobbly because the paper was propped up against the door jam, but the postman didn't even glance at it. He stuck the paper in a little notebook and walked off whistling, just as though he took registered airmail letters to people every day of the week, which perhaps he did. Jane had seen that postmark before. Palm Glade, Florida. That was where Mother's great-uncle John lived, Every year they got a letter from him at Christmas time, and every year it was the same thing. Three one-dollar bills, one each for Don and Jane and Betsy, and a letter for Mother full of good advice like, Waste not, want not, and a penny saved is a penny earned. Mother only laughed at the letters and threw them in the wastebasket, but they always made Jane and Don mad, as if they ever wasted anything at the Sanders' house, especially since father died and mother went back to her old job at the city library. But this wasn't Christmas. It was the 3rd of August. Maybe great-great-uncle John had decided to send them an unchristmas present for once. Not that it would be a bit like him, thought Jane, propping the letter up on the bookcase where mother would be sure to see it the minute she came in. But it was Don who came in first, carrying his wet bathing trunks. Boy! It is ever hot outside, he complained, stepping over Victoria. You could fry an egg on the pavement. Hey, where did that letter come from? It wasn't in the mail this morning. It's for mother, said Jane, from great-great-uncle John. Bet it isn't, he retorted. Look at the stamps. Registered 30 cents, airmail 6 cents. 
36 cents on a letter you could send for three. Waste not, want not, you know. Well, put it down before you drip all over it, said Jane loftily. Even if Don was bigger than she was, she was more than a year older, and she didn't believe in letting him forget it. Go hang your bath bathing trunks in the bathroom and be quiet about it, or you'll wake Bets, she added. She isn't asleep, called Don from the back of the house. Anyway, she isn't in bed. She must have gone out back to play, said Jane, heading for the kitchen. The refrigerator door was open and Jane shut it on the way by. She looked out in the tiny paved yard, just big enough for the trash cans and Betsy's little sandbox. Elizabeth Louisa Sanders, exclaimed Jane. What are you doing? Betsy looked up with big, solemn eyes. Her curls were pulled up on top of her head and fastened with a rubber band on account of the heat, and her pink face was streaked with dirt and sweat. It is not either hot enough to fry an egg, she said reproachfully. The egg carton, which should have been in the refrigerator, was on the back step, and there were big globs of raw egg mixed with shells on the hot cement. The remains of at least three more eggs were dribbling down the front of Betsy's sunsuit. Oh, Bets, wailed Jane. Just look at the mess, and Mother will be home any minute, and eggs cost money, too. And stop laughing, she added angrily to Don. This is all your fault, going around all the time, saying it's hot enough to fry an egg. But I didn't really mean it. You can just quit grinning and clean up this mess while I wash Bets. And I do really mean it, said Jane grimly. She stripped off Betsy's sunsuit and tossed it in the sink. She pulled her hand back from the hot water faucet and turned on the cold instead. Hot water would only cook the eggs into the cloth. She left the sunsuit soaking and started water running in the bathtub and dumped Betsy in. Ugh, there's even egg in your hair, exclaimed Jane. I'll have to shampoo you. The rubber band snarled in Betsy's curls as Jane pulled it off, and Betsy clutched at her head and howled. She squinched her eyes tight shut and went right on howling as Jane tipped her back in the water, lathered her hair, and then rinsed out the suds. "'You can stop yelling now,' said Jane finally. She rubbed Betsy's hair with a towel and asked, "'Soap in your eyes?' Betsy opened her eyes cautiously. "'No,' she said in a surprised voice. "'But... There's soap in my mouth, she added indignantly. Next time, keep it shut, said Jane unsympathetically. She put a clean sunsuit on Betsy and sat her down on the living room floor with a box of crayons and a coloring book. And stay there, she said fiercely, until Mother gets home. Don was scraping the remains of the last egg onto a piece of cardboard. He dumped it into the garbage can and called in to Jane. Were there any eggs left? One, why? Well, Betsy's right. It isn't hot enough to fry an egg on the pavement. But you know something? If I had some grease to keep it from sticking, I bet you I could fry an egg on the lid of the garbage can. It's twice as hot as the pavement. Before Jane could say what she thought of that idea, she heard Mother at the door. Mother, she called. A letter for you, registered airmail. Mother was carrying a sack of groceries in her arms, so she didn't see Victoria on the floor. Victoria let out an indignant yow while, when Mother stepped on her tail and leaped onto the bookcase, knocking the letter to the floor. 
Oh, mother, wailed Betsy. You stepped on her tail. Jane snatched the letter up and waved it at mother. Open it, open it, she urged. Poor Victoria, crooned Betsy, hauling the cat off the bookcase. You ought to say, I'm sorry, Victoria. I'm sorry, Victoria. She always gets stepped on when she lies in the doorway, and she knows it. Don, come and take the groceries. Don carried the bag into the kitchen, shouting over his shoulder, Did you see your letter with 36 cents worth of stamps on it? Hadn't you better open it right away? Mother took off her hat and pushed her damp hair back from her forehead. Then she sat down and kicked off her shoes. Then she took the letter from Jane and fanned her face with it before she opened it. While Mother read the typewritten letter, Jane picked up the envelope and shook it. But no dollar bills fell out. Not that she had expected them to, really. Is it from great-great-uncle John? she asked. No, it's from a lawyer. I told you so, said Don. But it's about great-uncle John. He's dead. Oh, said Jane and stopped embarrassed. She felt as though she ought to say something more, that she was sorry or something. But after all, she had never even seen great-great-uncle John. Betsy knew what to say. She looked up from the cat on her lap and remarked politely, I hope he had a lovely funeral, like my goldfish. But it wouldn't take pages and pages just to say that, said Don hopefully. Maybe he's left us a million dollars. No, he didn't leave us any money, said Mother, glancing back over the letter. Not even a thousand? Not even a hundred? asked Don. Not even anything? He did leave us something, an apartment house in Palm Glade. I believe it was where he lived himself. Oh, mother, is it near the ocean? cried Jane. Oh, I hope it's near the ocean. Why can't we just go and live in it? Think of the money you'd save not paying any rent. Hot diggity, a whole apartment house, shouted Don. We can live in one apartment until all the dishes are dirty and everything is good and messed up. And then we can lock the door and move into the next apartment until all the dishes... Oh, hush, Don, interrupted Jane. No fooling, Mother. What are you going to do with it? I don't know, replied Mother, looking a little dazed. Sell it, I suppose. Mr. Merrill, he's the lawyer who is handling Great Uncle John's estate, writes that the place is in rather poor repair, but several people have already asked him whether it will be for sale. And there's a lot in the letter about taxes that I don't understand very clearly. No, dear, he seems to think that I ought to go down and take a look at the place before I make up my mind about it. Oh, let's, cried Jane. Why, I've never been farther away from Philadelphia than Baltimore in my whole life. Just think, Florida. We studied about it in school. Palm trees, flamingos, orange groves. Sharks, alligators, hurricanes, added Don. We studied about it, too. Oh, dear, I just don't know, murmured Mother, frowning at the letter. Of course, I would have to take the lot of you, and it would be rather expensive. Still, I suppose I'll get some money out of it eventually, and it's not as if you'd be missing any school. And luckily, I have two weeks' vacation coming to me. And luckily, I won't be twelve until October, so I can still go half fare. And luckily, Betsy is only four, so she can go for free, said Don practically. And luckily, Victoria is only a cat, so she can go in a box, added Jane. 
Oh, no, we couldn't possibly take Victoria with us, exclaimed Mother. Betsy clutched Victoria fiercely. Yes, we can too take Victoria, she cried. But we're going on a long trip on a train, and Victoria would hate it, explained Mother. Perhaps the Schmitz will feed her while we're gone. The Schmitz lived over them in the upstairs half of the little row house. They're going away on their vacation tomorrow, objected Jane. For two whole weeks, Ellen was telling me yesterday. I just love riding on trains, announced Betsy dreamily. Why, you've never been on a train in your whole life, exclaimed Don. You don't know everything about me, replied Betsy coldly. You think you do, but you don't. And Victoria just loves riding on trains, too. That cat, said Mother. So in the end, they took Victoria. Mother arranged with the library to take her two weeks vacation now and more time if she needed it. And Victoria traveled in a box with a screened lid and behaved very well considering. They went in the coach train, the kind where the passengers are supposed to sleep sitting up because Mother couldn't afford a Pullman, even if she had just inherited an apartment house in Florida. Nobody slept very well, and by the time they got off in Palm Glade late in the afternoon, they were stiff and tired and rumpled. They were the only passengers for Palm Glade. There wasn't a living thing in sight, except for a dog asleep in the shadow of a baggage truck, and the station master half asleep in his little office. He roused himself enough to say that no taxis met the trains in the summer, but that he could give them directions to 303 Oleander Drive if they wanted to walk. So they walked. Mother carried one suitcase and Jane and Don took turns carrying the other suitcase in Victoria's box. Betsy lagged far behind. I'm so hot, she complained. But it's a nice clean heat, said Jane comfortingly. It doesn't smell of trucks and melted asphalt the way it does at home. It smells of sand and flowers and, and she sniffed, it smells of ocean. It really does. Oh, mother, the ocean can't be so very far away if we can smell it. How do you know what an ocean smells like, argued Don. You never smelled one before. I just know, replied Jane. Come on, Betsy, I'll take your hand. Palm Glade was bigger than it looked from the station. They walked along the main street for three or four blocks. More than half the little stores had signs saying, We'll op open November 15th or closed for the summer. There were vacant lots, too, full of brightly colored flowers growing wild, right there beside the sidewalk. Then they found the right corner and turned onto Oleander Drive. There were no sidewalks on Oleander Drive, so they walked in the pebbly, sandy street. They passed several apartment houses and a big hotel boarded up. Betsy began to limp. Aren't we there yet? she whimpered. There's a stone in my shoe. Just a little farther, said Jane cheerfully, hoping she was right, and she was. There it was, number 303. They set their luggage down and stared at their new property. It was a long, low, white stucco building with a red tile roof. Masses of shrubbery covered with strange, brilliant flowers grew all around it. There were several different kinds of palm trees on the wide green lawn, and one enormous live oak with a cluster of garden chairs beneath it. An elderly lady was sitting in one of the chairs, knitting and reading, both at once. She glanced up and peered at them over her glasses, and then went back to her knitting and reading. 
Somehow it hadn't occurred to Jane until this very minute that there would actually be people living here, and she suddenly felt very dusty and bedraggled. She straightened Betsy's hair ribbon and tried to smooth down her own rumpled dress. Dawn was reading out loud the little signs beside the front door. No peddlers, no children, no pets. Manager, apartment five. Thank goodness there's a manager, said Mother. Let's go find apartment five. They picked up their luggage and straggled into the building. The long hall was barely lighted by two feeble bulbs, and it was all they could do to make out the numbers on the doors. "'Remind me to put in some stronger light bulbs tomorrow,' said Mother. "'A penny saved is a penny earned,' quoted Don. He caught Jane's eye, and they both grinned. Apartment 5 turned out to be at the far end of the long, dim hall. Mother set down her suitcase and knocked on the door. 303 Oleander Drive Jane shifted her suitcase from her right hand to her left and waggled her fingers to get the numbness out of them. She looked down the long hall at ten closed doors, five on each side. Betsy pulled at Jane's skirt. I have to take my shoes off, she whispered urgently. Not yet, Jane whispered back. Pretty soon. Mother knocked at the door of number five again, but there was still no answer. There must be somebody home somewhere, she said, and walked back to the next door, number four, and knocked on it. They heard footsteps on the other side of the door, then the lock clicked and the door opened about two inches. No peddlers, said a small, thin voice. The door shut and the lock clicked again. Mother knocked again loudly. Again, the door opened a crack and Mother said quickly, I am not selling anything. Can you tell me where to find the manager? The door opened wider, wide enough for Jane to see a chain across the opening. A small, scared-looking lady peered out past Mother at Jane and Dawn and Betsy. "'If you want to see about renting an apartment, I am afraid you are wasting your time,' she said. "'No, children. There is a sign out front.' She started to close the door again, but this time Mother had her foot in it. "'I don't want to see about renting an apartment,' said Mother in an exasperated voice. And I do want to see the manager. I am Mrs. Sanders, the new owner of this building. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how do you do? I am Miss Giddings, Lucy Giddings. Miss Giddings extended a pale, thin hand past the chain, and Mother solemnly shook it. How do you do, said Mother. I hate to bother you, so if you will just tell me where to find the manager. The manager, squeaked Miss Giddings. Dear me. It never rains, but it pours, doesn't it? I mean, I'm afraid you can't find the manager, but Mrs. Pennypacker has his keys, so if you will just come with me. Miss Giddings unfastened the chain, slipped out, and closed the door quickly behind her. Mrs. Pennypacker, she went on as she led the way down the hall, is the only tenant in this building who has lived here longer than I have. I have made this my home for seventeen years, and I do hope, Mrs. Sanders, we all hope that you are not planning any changes. Here we are. She stopped in front of an apartment number one and tapped lightly on the door. About the keys, she went on earnestly. The manager really left them in my care, but Myrtle Pennypacker is so efficient, so very, very efficient, that she thought, dear me, perhaps she isn't home. Perhaps she didn't hear you, said Mother, and knocked louder on the door. 
The door flew open at once. Mrs. Pennypacker was a large, commanding lady in a purple-flowered dress. Her eyes, behind glittering pinch-on glasses, swept over the Sanders family and their shabby luggage, but she addressed herself to Miss Giddings. "'Really, Lucy!' she exclaimed in a booming voice. "'No need to batter the door down. I heard you the first time.' "'It will only take a minute,' apologized Miss Giddings. "'This is Mrs. Sanders, Myrtle. Mrs. Sanders would like to have the keys.' "'The keys!' exclaimed Mrs. Pennypacker. "'Lucy Giddings, are you out of your mind?' "'I am the new owner of this building,' said Mother rather sharply. "'Mr. McGregor was my great-uncle, and he left it to me in his will.' "'Well, really, how do you do? "'I'm afraid that we are rather upset around here. "'So many things all at once. "'Poor Mr. McGregor passing away, "'and then that unreliable manager disappearing. "'Not a, now a new owner. "'Most upsetting, but of course you want the keys. "'Won't you step in a moment?' Jane couldn't decide whether Mrs. Pennypacker meant them all to step in or just Mother, but Betsy followed Mother in, so Jane went in, too, to keep an eye on Betsy. Miss Giddings fluttered in after her, and Don stood uncomfortably just inside the doorway, still holding Victoria's box. "'I will get the keys. Please be seated,' said Mrs. Pennypacker with a wave of her hand and swept out of the room. The room was a large one, but so full of chairs and sofas and little tables and fern stands that there was hardly space to move without bumping into something. Jane picked out a wide chair and sat down, pulling Betsy down beside her. Betsy promptly unbuckled one sandal and took it off, shaking a pile of sand and pebbles onto the rug. "'Oh, Bet's not yet,' whispered Jane. "'Put it back on. Quick!' Instead, Betsy removed the other sandal and shook the sand out of it. Jane quickly set her own two feet down over the scrunchy, sandy place, and just in time, as Mrs. Pennypacker returned, jangling a large bunch of keys. "'These two big ones are the front door and the back door of the building,' she said to Mother. "'The two little ones are the storage closet and the meter room. The others are the doors to the apartments. Each has its proper number on it. Of course, you will not have to use them except in an emergency, as all the apartments are occupied.' "'All of them?' asked Mother in dismay. "'I was counting on staying here until I can get this business settled.' "'With these children?' Mrs. Pennypacker raised her eyebrows so suddenly that her glasses popped off the bridge of her nose and she caught them as they fell. "'Now, Myrtle, number six is vacant,' put in Miss Giddings anxiously. "'Your poor dear uncle lived in number six, she explained to Mother, "'and the manager's apartment, too, temporarily.' "'Temporarily!' snorted Mrs. Pennypacker. "'You mark my words, Lucy Giddings. "'We have seen the last of him. "'However, five and six are the two smallest apartments in the building, "'and with such a large family, Mrs. Sanders, "'I am sure you would be more comfortable elsewhere.' "'Jane got so interested listening to all this "'that she let Betsy stand up and walk away. "'Betsy drifted around the room on silent sock feet, "'in and out among the tables and chairs "'until she came to Victoria's box.' She squatted down and unlatched the lid and lifted Victoria out. Victoria had put in an unsettling night and day. She scratched Betsy on the wrist and Betsy dropped her with a wail. Don made a grab, but Victoria dodged him and raced across the room. Cats! exclaimed Mrs. Pennypacker in a horrified voice. Betsy opened her mouth wide and howled, I hate this awful old place. I want to go home. "'Children!' exclaimed Mrs. Pennypacker in the same horrified voice. 
Mother picked Betsy up and tried to comfort her, but Betsy refused to be comforted. And I hate all these awful old people, she roared. Jane and Don stalked Victoria around the furniture. They cornered her under a chair, and Jane reached down to pick her up, murmuring soothingly, Come on, Kitty. It's all right, Kitty. Just then, Mrs. Pennypacker charged down upon them, flapping her skirts and shouting, Shoo! Scat! Get that animal out of here! Victoria shot out from under the chair and leaped onto the back of the sofa, her claws making a tearing sound in the shiny upholstery. She dodged Mother's outstretched hand and took off through the open door into the hallway. Jane and Dawn ran after her, calling, Kitty, kitty, kitty! Betsy broke away from Mother and followed them, screaming at the top of her voice, Catch her! Catch her! Mother ran after Betsy, and Mrs. Giddings darted out after Mother, wringing her hands and murmuring, Oh, my goodness! Oh, my goodness! Mrs. Pennypacker stood guard over her own doorway, flapping her skirts and shouting, Scat! Victoria raced the length of the hall and doubled back with Don and Jane in hot pursuit. The noise of shouting, screaming, and thudding feet filled the narrow hallway. Doors popped open up and down the hall as tenants put their heads out to see what was going on. Most of them hastily closed their doors again, but one plump little woman dashed out with a broom and began to wave it helpfully around. "'Please stand still, everybody,' implored Jane. "'You're only scaring her.' Nobody paid the slightest attention. "'Scat!' shouted Mrs. Pennypacker. "'Catch her! Catch her!' shrieked Betsy. "'Betsy, come here!' commanded Mother." "'Look out! Here she comes again!' gasped the woman with the broom, making a wild swipe that missed Victoria by three feet, but only missed Miss Giddings by about three inches. Victoria cowered against a closed door halfway down the hall. "'Keep back, everybody! I've got her!' panted Don, stooping down. Then the door behind Victoria opened, and she shot in through it. Don tumbled in after her, almost upsetting the little man who had opened the door." "'Oh, Professor Quincy, do be careful,' implored Miss Giddings. Professor Quincy, a gnome-like little fellow with a gleaming bald head and a small, tidy beard, took in the situation at a glance. He stepped quietly back in and closed the door. Behind the closed door, there was silence for a moment, then a loud crash and the sound of running feet, then silence again. Then Professor Quincy put his head out and announced solemnly, "'The cat is caught.' "'May I suggest that you all retire to a safe distance?' Mother got a firm grip on Betsy. The woman with the broom went back into her apartment and shut the door. Miss Giddings retreated to the far end of the hall. Don came out carrying Victoria. Just at that moment, the lady who had been reading and knitting on the lawn opened the front screen door and stood there staring. "'Shut the door!' bellowed Don as Victoria dug her claws into him. But it was too late.' Victoria struggled loose and simply streaked through that open door to freedom. Don pelted after her, brushing roughly against the woman who was still standing there holding the door. "'Myrtle!' exclaimed the woman. "'Who are these people?' "'The new owners,' replied Mrs. Pennypacker. "'Merciful heavens!' gasped the woman. She bundled her knitting under her arm, scuttled into the apartment next to Mrs. Pennypacker's, and slammed the door." Oh, poor Victoria, thought Jane. We'll never catch her now, scared and lost in such a strange place. But just then, Don opened the front door and held it to let a boy walk through. A boy a little bigger than Don, wearing faded blue jeans and carrying Victoria. He caught her, 
cried Don triumphantly. He was just coming up the walk, and he just reached down, and zingo, he had her. I'll take her, offered Jane. She's scratching you something fierce. I don't know if I can pry her loose, said the boy. Where do you want her put? In here, called Mother from the doorway of number five, and bring the luggage. It was quite a procession down the corridor. The boy with Victoria, Jane with a suitcase, and Don with the other suitcase in Victoria's box, which Mrs. Pennypacker had set outside her door. Mother closed the door of number five behind them and breathed a loud sigh of relief. Victoria leaped to the floor, spitting and growling, and flattened herself under a sagging sofa. Miss Giddings was tiptoeing around the room, making little padding motions at the furniture and talking steadily at Mother. "'Of course, this apartment isn't furnished as nicely as some. Mr. McGregor thought that it was just for the manager's use. But you will find everything you need, I hope. The kitchen is through here, and this is the door to a small bedroom.' And then, of course, there is the sofa. But if you find you need more room, your late uncle's apartment is just across the hall, and, of course, you have the keys. Mother sank onto the sofa. Mercy! What a day! she groaned. Won't you sit down, Miss Giddings? I'm afraid that right now I'm completely confused. Tell me, what is all this about a manager who is supposed to live here? Miss Giddings perched on the edge of a chair. Mr. Brundage, you mean. The thing is that he has only been here a few weeks, and nobody really knows anything about him. The late Mr. McGregor always managed the building himself right up until his last illness. A very thrifty man. Waste not, what not, suggested Don. Mother frowned and shook her head at him, but Miss Giddings said eagerly, Exactly! His very words. Then he got too much for him, and he hired this Mr. Brundage, such a nice young man, I thought, although Myrtle Pennypecker said, but I'm sure I hope and trust that it, it will turn out that Myrtle was wrong. Mother interrupted. Please, just tell me one thing. Where is this Mr. Brundage? But that's just it. Nobody knows, explained Miss Giddings. He was here this morning because he took Myrtle's kitchen screen to mend. Then when I went to get my mail, the keys were in my mailbox along with a note saying he had been called out of town on urgent personal business and asking me to take charge of the keys. But of course, Myrtle thought that she had better. N not that it matters, because now, of course, you have them. Thank you very much, said Mother, standing up briskly. I'm certainly not going to worry about it now with all these hungry, tired children on my hands. I see that there are some cans and things in the kitchen. I am sure it will be all right if you use what you need, said Miss Giddings, following Mother into the kitchen. Jane could hear her opening and shutting drawers. Phew! exclaimed Jane. Thanks anyway for catching our cat. Why, where did the boy go? Out, said Don, and I don't blame him. I bet he thinks everybody around here is stark raving mad. No wonder, said Jane. Oh, I'm so tired and sleepy it hurts. Miss Giddings finally left, and Jane and Don helped Mother open cans and set the little table in the kitchen. Nobody had even missed Betsy when the door banged open and Mrs. Pennypacker marched in, dragging Betsy by the wrist. I found this child in my apartment, announced Mrs. Pennypacker. Goodness knows how long she had been there before I noticed her. I had to get my shoes, said Betsy in a small voice. She held out her scuffed sandals. 
just walked in without a buy or a leave, continued Mrs. Pennypacker, never even knocked. Come here, Betsy, said Mother gently. You must always knock on a door and wait for someone to say, come in. You're big enough to know that. Twenty years, stated Mrs. Pennypacker. Twenty years I have lived here, and in all that time there has never been a child in this building. Never. From the safety of Mother's skirt, Betsy interrupted in a loud voice. You just walked right in here. Betsy, exclaimed Mother. Well, she did, and nobody said come in, and she's plenty big enough to know better. Mrs. Pennypacker's face turned a dark red. Well, really, she sputtered, if your poor dear uncle had lived to see the day. And she turned on her heel and walked out. They had a strange meal of canned chicken noodle soup and canned peaches and crackers, and right in the middle of it, Betsy fell asleep with her head on the table. Mother carried her into the bedroom and tucked her in. While Mother unpacked, Jane and Don did the dishes. Victoria finally emerged from under the sofa and rubbed around their ankles, purring demurely and acting like a perfect lady. "'You awful cat,' said Jane, feeding her the soup Betsy hadn't finished. "'And I never even got a chance to thank that boy for catching her. Did you?' she asked Don. "'Who, me? I wasn't even looking when he ducked out, but we'll probably see him around. He must live near here. I hope he does anyway, because everyone else is sure about a hundred and ten years old.' Mother unlocked the apartment across the hall and fixed up great-great-uncle John's bed for Jane and his living room couch for Don. Stretched out comfortably in bed, Jane tried to think back as far as morning when they had pressed their noses against the train windows in Jacksonville and taken their first look at Florida. It seemed a million years ago so much had happened since and so fast, and most of it so perfectly awful. We've only just got here and everybody's mad at us already, she said out loud. I don't think I'm going to like it here. Huh? mumbled Don from the next room. Nothing. Look, where do you think that Mr. Brundage went to? How would I know? Jane thought of something else. What did you break in that man's apartment? We heard the biggest crash. Oh, that. Victoria knocked the glass cover off a case full of shells. Shells? What kind of shells? Just shells. Seashells. He has them all over the place. Must collect them or something. Was he mad? Not specially, mumbled Don. Listen, quit talking, can't you? I'm going to sleep. I'll talk all I want to, snapped Jane. But while she was trying to think what to say next, she went to sleep.